Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. You know, I have, I have four daughters, most of you know that. Four daughters, four girls, um, prayers, there's one right there, prayer request. You know, one of the things that I thought I understood about parenting before I was a parent, there's a lot of those, one of them, though, that I still struggle with on a weekly basis, preschool to middle school, still can't fathom how this is so, it's the thing where you have to keep feeding them. I mean, that, you know, I, and I don't know why, like I knew that was a part of the job description, I knew it came with the deal. But at least once a week, usually more often than that, I go into the kitchen, I go to the pantry, I go to the fridge, and I look, and there's nothing. And I I don't understand it. We just bought groceries, and I am, I'm shocked. There's nothing for me to eat. But I watch them. It's these kids. They just keep going back and eating again and again. And I've started tracking. I'm logging. I know what's going on. They have breakfast. They have mid-morning snack, school snack. They have lunch. They have after-school snack. They have pre-dinner snack because you have to have an appetizer, right? Then you have a wonderful dinner made by mom. But then at bedtime, why not have one more snack? And I'm not anti-snack. I love snacks. I have my own snacks. I hide them. They're in a hidden place. Lindsay has her snacks. She hides them. I know her place. She knows my place. The kids don't know our place. I'm not telling you because you might tell them, and then we would have no Oreos in the house, and I can't deal with that. So I'm not telling. But every week, every week we replenish, we restock, we refuel all of the pantries and the hiding places in our house, and every day they're in there demolishing it. And I don't know why it still surprises me. I mean, it's one of those things that shouldn't, I at least should be catching on by now, and yet, I mean, it's not like four teenage boys, it's, it's four girls. Preschool is the youngest one. I don't get it. Maybe it's the volume of the eating and of the children under my roof. It's something in there. But it should make sense because it's like this in life. All of life's most basic necessary resources are things that you have to continually replenish or else you're in trouble. And that is true in the physical life. We have to keep going back to the cupboard. We have to replenish these things over and over again or we're in trouble. But it's just as well, it's true in the spiritual life. That your life in Christ, there are certain basic necessary resources in your relationship with Jesus that you have to continually go back and replenish or else you find yourself in trouble. And the most basic necessary resource in the spiritual life, in your life with Christ, that you have to constantly replenish is that of faith. It's that of faith. That's what we'll see in our text today in Mark chapter 9. Grab your Bible in the New Testament. Turn to Mark chapter 9. We're in a series called Five Great Prayers for Lent. We're looking at prayers in the Bible that are vital, that are powerful, that are honest. And so they're good to teach us how to pray and why we pray And there's one in Mark 9 that I want to look at with you this morning that maybe it might be my favorite prayer in the Bible today. So Mark chapter 9, this is where the text starts for us today. It's in verse 14. It says, when they, and the they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. 
Jesus, Peter, James, and John had gone separate from the other disciples for a moment. They had gone up on a mountain to have an experience together. It's, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a beautiful story for another day, powerful story. Go ahead and go back and look at it on your own if you want. We'll someday come back to it again. But they're coming down from this moment, and it says they came back to the disciples. And when they got there, they saw a large crowd around the disciples and some scribes arguing with the disciples. Up on the mountain before they came down was an exalted, I mean, beautiful experience with Jesus. Absolutely incredible. But when they returned back down from the mountain into real life, it was utter chaos. And you probably know exactly what that feels like. You've had moments of clarity, of peace, of joy with the Lord. If not that, at least like with a family member or a loved one where you go away for a time and it's amazing. And then you come back to life and you come back to routine and it's just chaos. It's a mess waiting for you. There's a, an old poem that's been handed down from generation to generation uh, in that, that Christians have shared. It says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's a different story, right? <laughs> And, it, and it's true, and it is. And when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus come down from this exalted, I mean, incredible experience on the top of the mountain, they come down into the melee and the mess of, of life on earth, and they're quickly surrounded by it. Verse 15 says, immediately the entire crowd, when they saw Jesus as the hymn there, they saw him, they were amazed, and they began running up to greet him. And he, Jesus, asked them, what are you discussing here? And this is when a man stood up from the crowd, verse 17. He says, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and his body stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Let's pause here. We're going to get through the rest of the story. We will get there. But there's three things in this story that are very important for us to know that I want to kind of lift out of the text today. Three things about our faith, about our need for faith, about challenges to our faith, and when they come, what Jesus offers as a way of replenishing and restoring our faith. Here's the first lesson. Are you ready? Say yes. Okay. Face reality. Somebody say face reality. We need to face reality that life is absolutely full of situations that are greater than we can handle. We have to face the reality of that. And that in this story is happening on multiple levels with two different people groups. It's happening in here. The first people group is this father and this son. That's the first people group who are facing the reality that life is full of situations that are greater than we can handle. It says his son is possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And, and maybe you have experienced something like this in your life or maybe not. What if some of your most loved people in your entire life could not speak to you? You, you couldn't hear them speak your own name. What if you have a dearly loved one that you can't sit down and you can't have an intimate conversation with? And that's not the only situation here. This, in verse 18, says, whenever this spirit seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And you keep reading, verse 21 says that this has afflicted him since he was a young, young boy. And in verse 22, it says it has often thrown him into the fire and into the water, trying to destroy him. Now, we have a big job on our hands trying to reconcile and understand this spiritual demonic thing that's happening. That's what's happening. 
There is a a demonic possession. There is an oppressive spirit that is affecting this child from, from his earliest days and is torturing him. It's hard for us to reconcile and understand some of these invisible things that are real powers in this world, but the Bible is very clear that evil exists and that Satan really desires to destroy life, that this boy has been dealing with it for his entire life. Nothing has helped at this point, and that's just one level in this story of a situation where people are experiencing something much greater than they can handle. The dad is desperate. The boy is afflicted. There's a second level. Second level is in verse 17. The the man says to Jesus, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they, what? They couldn't do it. It's the other group. It's the other level. The disciples have found themselves in a situation that is greater than they can handle. And these are the the disciples. These are the the ones who were going everywhere with Jesus, and they were acting as Jesus' representatives. And it wasn't just their idea, oh, I'm going to go and do some great things. You go back a couple of chapters into Mark 6, it says that Jesus summoned the 12, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over what? over the unclean spirits, just like the one in Mark 9. So did it not take? Did it not work? Well, you go further in Mark 6, they went out, they preached that men should repent, and they were doing what? Casting out many demons and anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So here's these guys. It's been working. They have been sent as Jesus' representatives. He gave them everything they needed to do the thing that he called them to do. It had been working in the past. Many demons were being cast out. Many sick were being healed. Yet they came up to this situation in Mark 9, and they're struck with their inability to handle the thing that is in front of them. In fact, you go a little further in the story, you look at verse 28. It says they get into a quiet moment with Jesus, and they're dumbfounded. They don't understand why they don't have the ability to handle the situation with this boy and the spirit. And in both cases, looking at the, the dad and the boy, looking at the disciples, what you have is spiritual battle, human need, and extraordinary difficulties that are just bigger than they can face or even really know what to do about it. And that's something we can relate to, right? If we're honest about what we're facing, if we're actually walking around with our eyes open, looking at the world around us, if we're not just head down just trying to achieve and accumulate for ourselves, but we're actually looking at the world around us and we're looking at ourselves with honesty, we realize that everywhere we go, we are in over our head. And once in a while, I think it's important for us to do that, to recognize how deep in we are and our inability to handle it on our own. I don't know this, the story doesn't tell us exactly what the disciples are feeling, but I imagine they're feeling some confusion. I imagine perhaps they're feeling some embarrassment and some shame over this public failure because that's the way I would have felt. It's the way I often do feel when I fail, right? Please do not accuse me of being an optimist, not this morning. I don't think my my heart could take it. But I will tell you this, it is in moments like this of real desperation and real failure when I don't have the answers and all of my preparation and planning and all of my research doesn't get me where I need to be that I seem to have the greatest steps of growth in my faith and the greatest seasons of self-awareness in my life. Not an optimist, I'm just telling you I think it's good for us to come to times in our life where we're very honest and go, a lot of life presents to me situations that are just greater than I can handle. 
That's the first lesson here. The second lesson is this. We, once we've recognized that, we have to confess. We have to confess that we have a tendency to be self-reliant instead of God-reliant. First, I face it. It's too big for me. Then I confess, and I tend to try to do it on my own rather than trust God. Now, we should know better. Last week, I quoted to you Jesus saying in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And all over the room, I saw you. You nodded your head, and you said, amen, amen. You know it too, and yet we have a tendency to keep going back to trying our own strength and our own knowledge and our own understanding and applying it to the difficulties that we face. We, we have a tendency to go back and try to be more self-reliant than, than to be God-reliant, and we spend a lot of time trying to prove to ourselves and prove to other people that we are very competent for every situation that we deal with. Look at me. I got this. I know you think it's kind of out of hand. I've got it. I'm, I'm handling it. I'm handling my business. Everything's under control. Don't you worry about me. I think we have reveled so long in this spirit of independence. I can do it. I'm supposed to do it. I'm supposed to pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's what I'm supposed to do. But it's caused us to really struggle with the concept of being a people who are truly dependent on the Lord for everything in our life. And I want you to picture the scene with Jesus, Peter, James, and John as they come down the mountain. The disciples are surrounded. They have failed publicly. Religious leaders, these scribes, have gotten into an argument with the disciples. They're going back and forth. There's some kind of a religious debate going on. The father is disappointed once again. Nothing is done for his son, and the son is still possessed by a spirit that throws him onto the ground. Right? Utter chaos. Now, verse 19. Jesus answered them, here's his words, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring me the boy. And they brought the boy to him. And when, when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw the boy into a convulsion. He was falling to the ground and he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. What was Jesus' response? Verse 19, it was, Oh, unbelieving generation. And do you get the sense that Jesus is a little frustrated? You get that? That he's bothered? I do. And I want you to notice that what bothers Jesus isn't the disciples not being able to cast out the demon. It's not reserved just for them. It's not, oh, unbelieving disciples. It's expansive. It's an issue that touches every person. What is it that bothers Jesus? It's, It's the lack of belief. It's the lack of faith. Oh, unbelieving generation. It's something that affects everyone. And it looks like these people have either run out of real faith or they never were placing their faith in the right person in the first place. And in this time, they're just trying to handle things on their own. You can see it because it's human chaos. How do I really get that? Well, I look down at verse 28. It says, when Jesus came into the house, he brings his disciples indoors and they begin questioning him privately saying, why couldn't we do it, Jesus? what happened? We'd done it before. You gave us the authority. You sent us out in pairs. We'd been doing it. I did it so many times. I kept the record. I've been writing it down. Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And what Jesus says here has, I think, two things in focus. One, not only is prayer essential to casting out or to exercising a demon, but no more so is it critical and essential to living a life of faith and obedience in any way at all in the face of the brokenness of of this world. 
And, and remember, Jesus in Mark 6 had sent them out. He had given them authority, and they had been doing it. And perhaps now what they had lost sight of was that the authority they had and the ability that they had been demonstrating was something that was given to them. It was delegated to them. It's not something that they had. It's not something that they learned. It's not something they went to school for. It's not something that they figured out. They didn't go, oh, if I try a little harder like this, and I put my foot right here, and I posture myself like this, I can exercise demons. No, Every bit of authority and ability they had was something that was delegated to them from Jesus. And unlike Jesus, whose authority and whose ability is inerrant to who he is, it's innate in him because he is God, everything they had was derived from him, dependent on him. Let me give you a logic problem. I don't know when the last time you did a logic problem is. What do you get when you add John 15 to James 1.17. John 15.5 to James 1.17. Let me show you what they look like. John 15.5 is where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Add to it, James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? Above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What happens when you add those two things together? What do you get? You get the truth that every good and powerful thing that you experience and accomplish in this life only happens by the explicit permission and power of God himself. None of it happens apart from his permission or his power. None of it. That's what you get when you look at this. This isn't my idea. This is, this is the, the Bible's teaching for us and I think we have a tendency to convince ourselves of this, that one good day or a few good days strung together or a few small successes in life, in marriage and parenting and work and in ideation of, of some dream and, and accomplishment of that dream begins to seduce us and convince us that we are much more powerful than we really are and begins to seduce us and convince us that we can handle a lot more than we can really handle on our own. And then we go back to the beginning and we forget the reality that life is full of situations, absolutely full of situations that are greater than we can handle. And then we forget to confess that I have a tendency to place my reliance in the wrong place in myself rather than in, in God. Jesus says, this kind cannot come out by anything but by prayer. And when he said this, I don't think he had in mind any kind of incantation, some magic spell or an invocation, but he had in mind a particular attitude. We've been saying the last few weeks, prayer is not just an act, it's more so an attitude, one of, in, of complete and utter a absolute dependence upon God for everything in this life. And when Jesus says this, he's not like, oh, there's some magic words you didn't say in prayer before you tried to exercise this demon. He's saying, you forgot that you are dependent upon me for everything. And where you are reminded that is in the place of prayer. That's where you are reminded of that. We need to be reminded that, that we really can't do anything, really nothing of value, nothing of worth, nothing of, of faith and obedience in this life apart from him, apart from him. Now, I want you to look back at this boy's dad because this boy's dad is my hero in this story. He's the good example. He knows Verse 22, that he's in over his head. He's not self-reliant. And what's he say? He says, Jesus, if you can do anything, 
Would you take pity on us? And would you help us? And you compare him to the disciples, like, I don't even, I don't even think he is for sure sure Jesus can help, right? Jesus, I mean, if you can do anything, if you could, do you think you could maybe, is it within the realm, the scope of your ability? Because they couldn't, can, can you help us? And this is good because Jesus isn't concerned only with those who have all of the answers and have all of their stuff together. That's great news. He says, if you can do anything, could you have pity on us and help us? And Jesus begins to build in his faith. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes, right? Here's the third lesson. Third lesson is remember. We need to remember that Jesus gives grace to those who acknowledge their need. That's who Jesus delights to give grace to. Jesus responds to our weakness. He responds to our need. And this father, he says, he says, I don't know if you can do it. And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And Jesus is basing this upon his own identity. You know, Jesus says, if I can do anything, let me, let me explain you something right now, okay? If I can do anything, I have the authority of God because I am God. That's who I am. And John 1 says that Jesus was in the beginning and all things were created in, through, and by Jesus. And nothing that has been created ever was created apart from Jesus himself. If I can do anything, (laughs) I am master over everything. I can handle anything that this life brings to you. I, I am God. And so he compels this guy. He's asking him to surrender any skepticism that might come as a result of what seems like a hopeless situation in his life and to step forward in faith, to believe. And this is the best part of this story. I literally have come back to this thousands of times in my life. Like that's not like a pastor number. Oh, like I, I guarantee you thousands of times I have, I have gone to this next line in my personal life, and in ministry with others. Verse 24, immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And upon those words, Jesus went to work and did what no one else could do. Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? How is it possible For this man at the same time to declare, I believe, and yet to not believe. I think the answer is simpler than the question. The answer is, he has the ability to be honest about his faith. Maybe more honest than a lot of Christians tend to be. Because we deny we have doubts, or we ignore our doubts, or we suppress our doubts, because maybe we're afraid that we're not supposed to have doubts. Doubts. Even if we think it's okay with God that we would have doubts, we certainly don't want our friends to think that we have doubts. But this guy, he says, look, I want to express genuine faith in this moment, but it's only genuine if I'm honest about the struggles I have with my faith. I believe, and yet I know it's not perfect. I know it's not infallible. I know that there are times where I just don't know. I want to believe. I want to put my, my foot of faith forward, but at the same time, I'm going... I don't see it. I don't see how it's going to work. I, I, and and it, it's daunting. 
And he takes this to Jesus and he says, so you help my unbelief. The, the contemporary English version puts it this way. I do have faith. Please help me to have even more. And Jesus is pleased with this. So pleased that he immediately, he acts. He removes the spirit and heals the son. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's true faith. Because true faith is always aware of how inadequate it is. Let me show you what I mean by that. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, which is one of my top five favorite recommendations for people, Jesus the King by Tim Keller, he wrote this. Jesus could have told this man, purify your heart, confess all your sins, get rid of all your doubt and your double-mindedness. Once you have surrendered to me totally and can come before me with a pure heart, then you can ask for the healing you need. But Jesus doesn't say this at all. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That's saving faith, faith in Jesus instead of in oneself. And I love that. And you go back to the story and you compare and contrast the, the upset, the, the hurting parent, the father with the disciples. And what you find in this passage is that what God calls us to is honesty and self-awareness and turning to him and depending on him. You know what I didn't include in that list was perfection, omniscience. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't add in that list having all of your stuff together having a completely purified perspective about every situation that's not on the list. When you compare the Father to the disciples and what happens in this passage, God calls us to honesty, to self-awareness, to turn to Him, and to depend on Him. Remember, Jesus gives grace to those who acknowledge their need. That's the heart of the gospel. The gospel of salvation is rooted in Jesus gives help. He gives grace to those who acknowledge their need. The Bible is full of this message. I want to give you a few examples. Proverbs 3.34, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet God gives grace to the afflicted. 2 Corinthians 12.9, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. James 4.6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, insert the self-reliant, but it gives grace to the humble you got to love the honesty and the humility of the hurting parent in this story. I believe, Lord, but my faith is weak. It's fallible. It struggles. Like, I, I, I pray. I, I, I want to have faith. I do the religious things. I'm here before you now, but if I'm honest, I've reserved a lot of my faith. I, I've let it begin to die. It has, de- it has depleted from me. And when I think about the situation I'm facing right now, the real feelings I have are hopelessness. I, 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 I don't know what to do. And I love this because the father, in a sense, when he says, I believe, but help my unbelief, it's almost as if what it is, he's saying, If my son is going to be delivered, it'll be by you. And if you don't deliver him, then he won't be delivered. And I accept that. There's nowhere else to turn. 
I know that. I accept that. So would you help me in spite of me? I gotta tell you this. Though this, I'm calling this a prayer, I'm calling it my favorite prayer in the Bible, really. We wouldn't traditionally think of it as a prayer because he doesn't kneel, he doesn't clasp his hands together, he doesn't bow his head, he doesn't say, dear Lord, he doesn't say amen, he's not following a model prayer. He's not, you know, trying to communicate to the invisible God, but he's standing in front of Jesus talking to him. But if we believe that prayer is talking with God and Jesus is God, then what this man is doing is praying. You see that? It's my favorite prayer in the Bible because it's real. It's honest. It's vulnerable. He's just clinging to Jesus, asking for help. And Jesus delights in a prayer like this. And he delights to respond to a prayer like this. You, you've had conversations with people that were, were, were not honest, that were not real, that were small talk and bluffing and obligation. There was no heart, and no truth. You, you've had that experience and then you've had intimate conversations with people and you know the difference between the two, right? What this man does here, I think, is the model of the perfect prayer. It acknowledges Jesus' identity and it acknowledges the desperate truth about my need. I love this prayer. I don't know what situation you're facing right now that is greater than you can handle. I don't know exactly where you tend to be self-reliant instead of God-reliant. I don't know where you are rowing harder, trying harder in all of your strength, all of your might, trying to cover all of your bases to try to handle something on your own. I expect I'm right in saying that you do that. I have a pretty good record of, of guessing that people try to handle things on their own and be more self-reliant and God-reliant. I'm 10 for 10 on that one because we all really struggle with this. I don't know where it is specifically you struggle right now, but let me encourage you to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because if we keep going in the same way that we are, thinking, oh, I can handle it, I got this, we'll see the same kind of results that you see in this story. Confusion and chaos and disappointment, and like the disciples, ultimately, failure. We struggle to accept the fact that we're really a people who are completely dependent on the Lord for any good thing. We struggle to understand that and to live as a dependent people. It works against something in, in, inside of us. It's called our pride. It's called our, our ego. We struggle to embrace, to even understand what it means to live dependent upon God each and every day. I think we must come to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe. What a great moment to say, but help my unbelief. And to hear Jesus' words when he says, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer, what challenges are you facing or are we facing as a church that cannot come out by anything but by prayer? And the story teaches us that amidst our weaknesses and amidst our failures, we should be driven wholeheartedly toward the Lord and his power toward the cross. And, and this morning, 
I hope you grabbed one of these this morning. If not, maybe a couple of our our folks in the back might grab some and and pass them out. We're going to come to the communion table, and I want to give you an invitation this morning. I want to ask you to allow that scary thing, that painful thing, I want to invite you to, to take that thing of human limitations and human brokenness that plagues you, that you have not figured out how to handle it, and bring it to this act of remembrance. Remembrance of the one who faced our sin and took on the consequences for our sin and overcame death. Because some things can't come out except by the one who could do all of that and our dependence upon him. And I don't know what that thing is. Maybe, maybe it's a place where you're, you're stuck in your marriage and you go, I've given up all hope. This is all it's going to be or I'm done. Maybe it's another relationship like that. Maybe it's a, a sin that you just cannot seem to get past and you know it's no good for you and you know it's plaguing your life and now not only are you experiencing consequences but your consequences are landing on others but you don't know how to beat it. Maybe it is that what seems like a completely overwhelming, hopeless situation with one of your children. With another relationship you have, maybe in this church or at work, that thing where you go, Lord, why couldn't I do it? And as we take this meal this morning, this act of remembrance, say, Lord, I believe. My belief, though, is so often partial and imperfect. Would you just help my unbelief in this specific situation? Would you help my unbelief? And receive from him everything that we need to live. In 1 Corinthians 11, we taught about the Lord's Supper. It says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body in which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He talked to these disciples and, and he took a cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. This morning, if you want to open the top. And bring to mind the thing that's bigger than you can handle. Maybe you've tried to rely on yourself instead of him. And maybe you need to remember this morning it's his grace that comes to your weakness and say, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. And remember him who has accomplished all things for you and drink in remembrance of him. can turn it over and take this very small piece of bread. And remember, it represents Jesus' body. That he did not save us by sitting on a throne in heaven and calling down, get up here. But he came down and he put on flesh. And then he had his body broken and tortured 
was killed for, for you, and yet that body got out of the grave and promises life for all who trust in him. And you say, Lord, help my unbelief and eat in remembrance of him. God, this morning, we make no pretense that we're a perfect people. Help us to acknowledge the open eyes and open hearts that life is full of situations that are greater than we can handle, and that doesn't stop, not until you return. Help us to to depend on you. Lord, there's some desperate situations in this room right now. And some of us have given up or are giving up hope that it light can ever be seen. And I'm reminded of the man who said, Lord, if you can do anything, and Jesus said, Son, I can do everything. I'm God. Would you help us to cling to you like this hurting man in this story? In Jesus' name.